Welcome to episode 75, Ancient Perspectives on the Image of God. Well, thanks for coming back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Today, we'll be exploring how the ancient Near Eastern understanding of the image of God, how that might influence how we think about the concept today. Throughout history, humanity has pondered questions about our place in the world and our relationship to the divine. And the concept of being made in the image of God has played a significant role in shaping our understanding of human nature, of our dignity, and our purpose. But what did this idea mean in the context of the ancient Near East, where it first emerged? In this episode, we will dive into the cultural and historical background of the image of God concept. We'll explore its various interpretations and implications in the religious and mythological traditions of the ancient world. But before we dive into the concept of the image of God, I do just want to mention briefly that I have scheduled an Israel trip in February of 2024. It's a 10-day trip, and we'll be seeing a majority of the land in those 10 days. It is a fast and furious trip that will change your perspective on how you read the Bible. If you've not been there, you've probably talked to some people that have made the trip to Israel. Every single time people come back, The one thing they say is, I will never read the Bible the same way again. And I can guarantee you this trip will do the same. I've led several groups over, and things are picking back up now after the pandemic, and people are once again visiting the land that they have been reading about their entire lives. So if you're at all interested, just head over to RethinkingScripture.com. Right there on the front page, I've got a link to my Holy Land trip page. It's got all the itinerary It's got pricing. It's got everything that you need to know about that trip. And if there's more information that you need, just use the contact tab on the website, and I'll be sure to get right back to you. So enough of the announcements. In today's episode, we are going to be tackling this concept of the image of God, how humanity is made within that image, and what implications that might have for your everyday life. And I've kind of broken the episode into three different sections. In the first section, we'll be looking at kind of the modern-day understanding of this concept, the image of God, and how is it that different people look at this concept as they approach the Bible and the biblical text. So that's the first section, what's the lay of the land as far as image of God is concerned. And then in the second section, we'll be visiting the ancient Near Eastern perspective for this concept. And we'll try and see how an ancient Near Eastern reader would have understood this concept as it was first presented and maybe ask the question, should that change the way we approach the concept as well? And in the last section, we'll be looking into Gregory Beale's idea of we become what we worship, which is a biblical theology of idolatry. And this fits in right in with our topic because the ancient concept of an idol and idolatry is having to do with the image of the gods. So that's the lay of the land. We're going to be taking a trip back in time to look at the image of God.
So to begin with, and to get the lay of the land, how people approach this from all the different angles, I'll be referencing a book by S. Joshua Swamidas. It was written back in 2019, and it is called The Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry. <laughs> and for that book, we will not be getting into the majority of his premise about the genealogical Adam and Eve. It is a fascinating study, and honestly, some of it was way above my head. <laughs> but near the beginning of his book, he does do a good job of summarizing the different stances that people have in our modern-day context and in our conversations about how we view the image of God. And he begins just by saying this, Some are convinced that to be human is to be in the image of God. So, therefore, by defining the image of God, we are defining what it means to be human. He says, I'm not sure this is ultimately the best strategy. Nonetheless, it is useful for the moment to show the range of positions held on this phrase, image of God. What exactly is the image of God? And then he gives a little historical context. He says, throughout church history, it is often said that there have been three main ways to understand the image of God. So first, he describes the substance understanding. And it's that understanding that says the image of God is understood as the set of attributes that we have in common with God. Different theologians will emphasize different attributes, such as human uniqueness or exceptionality, rational souls, language, universal rights, dignity, things like that. And he says that the substance view is sometimes understood kind of simultaneously with structuralism, which is another one of his points coming up. So breaking away from his work, the first kind of way people have approached this over time has been this substance idea that the image of God idea is really a set of attributes that we share. The second way people have viewed this is in a vocational or functional or maybe a regency understanding. And it's here that the image of God is understood as a God-given call or role, perhaps maybe to represent him in the world. It's this understanding that sometimes is connected to the function of government, and it is the dominant understanding among modern exegetes. So we've got the substance, and then we've got this functional idea, this regency, this this idea of that we are representing somebody else in the role that we take. And lastly, Swamidas says there is the relational understanding, that the image of God is understood as a certain sort of relationship that we have with God, or perhaps with each other in community around this idea. And he does mention that this understanding is probably the least common now, but it was very popular in the past, and it was put forward by people like Karl Barth, Martin Luther, and John Calvin. So those are the three main ways that people have approached the image of God idea throughout church history. The substance understanding, our attributes are somehow in common with God, a vocational or a functional understanding of the image. In other words, when we do what we do, we are image-bearing, 
And then somehow a relational understanding would be the third. But other minority views include things like a structural understanding or the universal worth and dignity view. There's a Christological understanding, and there's even an exiled heavenly being understanding of the image of God. And he says that philosophers tend to emphasize the substance understanding, but most modern exegetes emphasize the vocational understanding. So breaking away from that content and just getting a big picture idea of how people approach this, if you're within the philosophic realm, you're going to be approaching this possibly more from a substance standpoint. In other words, philosophically, you're going to be looking at sets of attributes that humans have, and you're going to be saying, because humans are unique in having those types of attributes, then those are the image-bearing qualities that we have. But most exegetes, and that just means people that read the Bible and come out with a theology of image of God from that context, most exegetes end up emphasizing the vocational understanding or maybe the functional understanding. And that's simply because as you go to the text, oftentimes this image idea is attached to a function, a type of work that we do. And to be sure, we're talking in general terms because some, and I would say maybe even most people that approach this topic, simultaneously mix multiple understandings together. And while others might strongly emphasize one over the others, the key point is that scholars cannot agree on what precisely is the image of God. And if this is what it means to be human, theologians are no closer to consensus than the scientists are. So we've laid the groundwork on how modern day and throughout church history, we have maybe approached this topic of image bearing. But what I'm really interested in getting into is how would this concept have been understood by the original readers of the book of Genesis within their context, within their culture? Is there any way to even know what that is? Because it's one thing to have the conversation today concerning the things that we are thinking about, but we are not the people that it was originally written to. And so if we go to the text and try and find the answers to our questions only, then we might be answering questions that the text was never really addressing at all. And when we talk about visiting the ancient Near Eastern culture and trying to understand it, there's really nobody that has done it better than John H. Walton. And today we're going to be using his 2017 title, Old Testament Theology for Christians, From Ancient Context to Enduring Belief. And I'll just mention this. This episode is airing first on April 20th, 2023. And it is that day that I will be visiting John H. Walton's classes at Wheaton College. He's got two classes, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And it is a special time because this is his final year of teaching at Wheaton. And that day is actually the day they're holding his retirement party. So 
Maybe even as you're listening to this episode, I am sitting in and listening in and learning more. But today, we'll just be talking about what he's brought to light about the image of God in the ancient Near Eastern perspective. And from his book, he says this, If we want to derive the enduring theology from the Old Testament with regard to how we should think about ourselves and all of humanity, we must begin with an understanding of the information the Old Testament offers from its ancient Near Eastern perspective. In both the Old Testament and the ancient Near East, this task involves understanding the image of God. And he says here, as is almost always the case, we will find similarity between the Old Testament and the ancient Near East on the surface level, but we will find significant differences in the details. And just breaking away from this opening paragraph by Walton, what we see in the Bible in some ways mirrors or has similarities to the surrounding pagan ideas of all of these concepts of creation, of image of God. There are similarities. And historically, the church's response to that would be a violent reaction pushing away from that idea. And the logic was that we didn't want to admit that the Bible has similarities with pagan sources because the implication might be that the Bible copied those ancient sources. John Walton's whole premise in this conversation is that we should expect to see similarities with outside extra-biblical sources because they were written into a certain cultural river. That's what he calls it. It's this moving culture that the Bible writers were in along with all of their pagan neighbors. And so when the Bible writers decided to tell a story, it would only make sense that they would use what was commonly understood within that cultural river. But that's not the end of his point. His point is specifically that every time we see similarities between the Old Testament and the ancient Near East, on the surface level, there are significant differences in the details. So like with the creation account, I've mentioned this before, even though the creation account has similarities with pagan source creation accounts, the significant details are dramatically different. Somebody hearing the Old Testament story of God's creation would have understood the context because the story was told in a similar format, but the details of how the creation came about and humanity's relationship with God would have been dramatically different than the original context that they had always heard. And again, here in the ancient Near East image of God, we should expect to see similarities but then also dramatic differences. That's the truth of the Bible. That's what the truth is, those dramatic differences. So getting back to Walton. In the ancient Near East, the image of God can be explored using three different but related lenses. First, you could look at this topic from the idea that there are images that are manufactured to manifest a God's presence. This is the figurine, the statue that you would make. And these are manufactured to manifest a God's presence. That's one lens. Another lens is that the image of God can be found in people. 
but in the ancient context that generally wasn't everybody, that was almost always only the king. So in an ancient concept, as you were looking at the king, there was a relationship there that related to the image of the God that that king followed. Not necessarily attributes per se, but maybe authority. So that's the second lens. And the third lens would be images of the king that are represented in reliefs and statues and used in a variety of different ways. So you've got these three different lenses. Image of God is related through a statue. Image of God related through a person, usually the king, or reliefs or statues of that king. And Walton suggests that in that ancient context, that the image, those statues, they were understood to have been chosen by God, commissioned by the God, and functioned on behalf of the God. Now, when we look at a statue in modern day, we might understand that as being a separate entity from the God, but that's not how they would have understood it. Walton says it was not a separate entity functioning on behalf of the God, but it was one of the means by which the God functioned on earth. So that's kind of that first view. And sometimes, like in the second view, sometimes that image of the deity also connected to people. But in almost every case, it referred specifically to the king. So when a king ascends to the throne at coronation, a status is conferred on him by virtue of the office that he has attained. In this category, the second lens, the image is seen as both representational and functional. And then he describes that third lens in a little more detail. He says, in the third category, when the king sets up an image in a temple, like in a vassal town or at the border of a territory, the idea is that the image stands there as a substitute for the king. It means that the king is to be considered present with his image, even when he is entirely somewhere else. And Walton suggested just from these brief examples, we can observe that the concept of image in the ancient world is expressed through ideas of function and substitution and representation and status and identity. And he gives us this list because he wants to make the point that in no case in the ancient Near Eastern context was the ideology focused on a physical resemblance or on characteristic abilities. So, for example, the king was not identified as the image of God because he happened to have certain characteristics that the God also had or that he had been given those characteristics by the God. That's not the way they were looking at it. And just breaking away from Walton just for a second, so what he's saying is in the ancient Near East, the whole substance understanding, the common attributes understanding, the philosophic way that we look at this topic sometimes, it would not have been one of the questions that they were asking. And Walton goes on to kind of clarify some of this. They would have been looking specifically at status and identity. And getting back to the text, he's been using this idea of status to refer to something that is conferred on someone and about which they have no choice. So somebody's status is something that's given to them. In contrast, identity reflects how they choose to see themselves 
and what they want others to see in them. So the image of God in the Old Testament is therefore seen as a status given by God. So in conferring the status, God identifies people with him. In doing so, he is revealing the identity that humans should adopt if they want to conceive themselves in a way that would allow them to properly understand how they should live in order to serve the purpose for which God has created them. People can choose to identify as the image of God or not, but their choice of identity does not change their status. The status is expressed as corporate, since all people, by virtue of being people, are included. And consequently, we are not individually his images, we are corporately his image. So, breaking away from Walton's work, the the whole conversation about identity and status could speak to a lot of conversations that we're having these days, not just about image of God, but maybe a status that God has placed on us that's conferred to us. Our identity then becomes how we want to engage with that status. And from an image of God standpoint, The status of being made in God's image is a corporate thing. It's given to all of humanity as a whole. And the identity that each individual has can be unique within that. They can embrace their status and view themselves as being made in the image of God, or they can rebel against that. Walton says that the idea that people corporately, as God's image, function alongside him to carry out his purpose is seen in Genesis 1.28, where humanity is granted the role of subduing and ruling the earth. These roles bring humanity into partnership with God as he continues his creative work of bringing order. So, What Walton argues, and I made the same point in my book, is that when we go to Genesis 1.28 and we see that humanity is created in God's image, that is closely attached to a functional role. And so we're slipping into why exegetes sometimes see functionality as the main way we should be understanding the image of God idea. Walton says, at the same time, we can see that there is no cause in either the text or the ancient world for viewing the image of God in terms of psychological or neurological categories. The text does not address the issues that are distinctive to our cultural river. It is true that the Old Testament would see the image of God as differentiating us from animals. Genesis 9 is clear on that. But any capability that we recognize as distinguishing ourselves from animals, for instance, uh, self-awareness, our conscience, awareness of mortality, the ability to think metaphysically, all of those cannot therefore be considered the image of God from an ancient perspective. These characteristics may be thought as capacities that God has given that enable us to function in our role, but the image is a status, not a set of capabilities. 
And then Walton kind of ties it into more of a New Testament concept here. He says, in this way, the image of God can be compared to the New Testament concept of the body of Christ. None of us individually is the body of Christ, but we are all part of the body of Christ. Similarly, none of us individually is the image of God. We are all part of a corporate humanity which is the image of God. This corporately conferred status also distinguishes the Old Testament understanding of humanity from the ancient Near Eastern understanding of humanity. In other words, this is the detail that the Bible gives to its cultural river that would have been a dramatic difference. And it's because the status that humanity is given in the ancient Near East is that of slaves or at best, servants, and that humanity is created to meet the needs of the gods. That's the purpose of humanity in the ancient Near Eastern cultural tradition. But in Old Testament theology, humanity is given the role of a vicegerent in carrying out God's purposes and is made steward of all that God has created. This was a paradigm shift, not just for Israel, but the entire world that this message went into. And it was taken up as a theological affirmation that continues to shape how we think about ourselves today in relationship to God. To close out today, I'd like to introduce you to Gregory Beale's work, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. It was written in 2018. And this is a summary of a lot of work that Gregory Beale has done over the years. In other work, Beale has focused very heavily on temple theology, the role that temples played in the Old Testament and how we should view them today. But a lot of his work has been around this idea of idolatry because it's those idols, right? Those, that first lens that Walton talked about where a physical representation of the God was placed in a temple, that that physical representation didn't have necessarily physical attributes, but it was commissioned by that ancient God. It was there to represent as an extension of who he is. And Beale suggests that as we go to the story of Adam and Eve, that we can also view that in an ancient Near Eastern context, and in fact, that we should. Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, are presented in a temple-like atmosphere, the Garden of Eden. And that would have been totally understood and obvious in an ancient context. And because the biblical view of humanity is not just working as slaves for the God, but working in conjunction with the God as vicegerents, representatives on earth, in other words, the idea of that original Garden of Eden scene is that Adam and Eve, as they grew their family and increased their influence on their surroundings, the garden area would need to expand. And we should be thinking about that garden area as a place where God's rule, his function and order reigns supreme. 
and that the area outside the garden was categorically different space. It was disorganized. But as the plan would have gone, Adam and Eve, following God's rules, would have expanded the borders of the garden, and eventually that garden would have covered the entire earth, bringing God's rule and order to all of creation. But Beale says, rather than extending the divine presence of the garden sanctuary by reflecting it as he and his progeny moved outward, Adam and Eve were instead expelled from it. Though it was to be only in the Eden temple where Adam and Eve were to reflect God's rest, outside the garden where they were exiled, they could find only wearisome toil. And consequently, by their expulsion, they could no longer reflect God's living image as they were designed to do. And they would experience death. Instead of wanting to be near God and reflect him, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So this is the origin story of the way the world operates today. We were created to be God's representatives here on earth. And originally that was within the Garden of Eden a temple-like scenario where God's rule reigns supreme. And if everyone within that space is following God's function and order, then his image bearers are bringing function and order to chaotic situations that exist outside of that space. And his function and order is spreading throughout the world. But the way the story played, Adam and Eve are now still trying to do what they were created to do, but they're not going to be able to do it in a restful format. And Beale says that all subsequent idolaters are people, unlike Adam before his fall, who find themselves already possessing a distorted image of God in themselves. When they, and we could just as easily say we, when we exchange worship of God and our proximity to his presence— It is a worship that is already flawed. In addition, unlike Adam, we do not exchange a pristine reflection of divine glory within ourselves, but we decide to reflect the idolatrous images of the world instead of the true God's image. So, breaking away, uh, Beale is going to hold to a damaged image view. So, because of our sin, our image is damage in a way that it wasn't for Adam and Eve in the beginning before the fall. So we start from a different place than Adam started from. That's the message of Genesis 2 and 3. In his work, Beale suggests that we become like what we worship. In the ancient Near Eastern world, an idol was an image of the God that it represented. We've covered that already. And it's these idols, the actual statues made out of wood or rock or clay, they often had features that resembled man. They were made with eyes and ears and hands. And like the false gods that they represented, they were unable to recognize spiritual truth. In other words, the statue's eyes, they were unable to see. Their ears were unable to hear. And Beale's premise is that idolatry is the worship of these false gods. 
And when we worship those idols, we become more like that which we worship. Our spiritual eyesight becomes affected when we're worshiping a false idol whose spiritual eyesight is non-existent. Our spiritual hearing is degraded when we are worshiping something that can't hear things from the spiritual realm. We become like what we worship. And Beale suggests that this is the context of many different passages in the Bible. For example, Psalm 115, verses 4 through 7, says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Psalm 135, verse 15 through 18. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. And the fascinating thing that Beale connects that I had never connected before reading his work is the use of Isaiah chapter 6, not just in the Old Testament and understanding it in its original context, but Isaiah 6, a certain passage in there, is quoted or alluded to several times in the New Testament. God purifies Isaiah in this vision, and he then asks, who shall I send? Meaning, who's going to go out to the world and give them the message that I have? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then God says in verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9 of Isaiah, he says, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. God gives Isaiah the instruction to render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now, just reading that, some bells and whistles may be going off in your head. Like, that sounds very familiar, because if you've spent any time in the Gospels, you've run across this. In Matthew chapter 13, you've got the parable of the sower. You remember, sower goes out, he sows seeds, it falls on different types of soil, and the seed has different reactions in each of the different types of soil. And then Jesus says, he who has ears, let them hear. (laughs) It's within this idea of idolatry that Jesus is speaking into. And how do we know that? Because of the very next thing. The disciples came and said to him, verse 10, why do you speak to them in parables, to the crowds? In other words, they're not going to understand what you're saying. And Jesus answers, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So what's the difference? Jesus says, For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, 
even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. (laughs) Sound familiar? And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And just by already having been in Isaiah chapter 6 and going through the Psalms, understanding how idols looked and how those that worship them become like those idols, we already know that the people that don't understand Jesus have been so caught up in worshiping false gods and false idols, and their spiritual senses have become inoperable. Jesus says to his disciples, in their case, regarding these people that are not understanding what I'm saying, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. Jesus was speaking into an ancient Near Eastern idea of idolatry. He understood that we become like that which we worship. And he knew that many of the people in the crowds that came to even listen to him did not have spiritual ears and eyes that could see or hear because of their choices to follow false idols. And as we close today, I would just say the same is probably similar in our circumstances, although we don't make little figurines and sit down and worship them as often in our culture as they did in theirs. We do have things in our life that we spend enormous amounts of time following that don't have any capability of giving spiritual insight to the words and the ideas of God. So, from an ancient perspective, our image-bearing was likely viewed from a functional lens. When we do what God would have us do in the way that he would have us do it, we are choosing to identify with the status that God has already shared with all of humanity. In other words, when we are in our God-given place to be, and doing the thing that we were created to do the way God would have us do it, we bear the image of the one who created us. And while this will play out in many different ways, these image-bearing activities will largely be functional exercises of bringing God's order to chaotic situations. As members of humanity, we are called to help cure disorder by applying the function and order that God established in the first six days of creation. And when we do that, 
we bear his image to a world that desperately needs to be able to see and hear spiritual truth. Well, that's all I got for today on Image Bearing. Thanks again for listening in. Don't forget about the Israel trip. If you're at all interested, make your way to rethinkingscripture.com and let me know if I can answer any questions.